We've actually been talking over the last few weeks to prepare us for Christmas. Uh, we've been looking at some different Christmas carols, kind of dialing in on the, the meaning behind those carols, what they mean, and uh, uh, reflecting on the words of those carols. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to Christmas carols, I tend to uh, find different emotions that go with, with each one. We've been singing these songs for years, some for hundreds of years. And uh, uh, maybe some of you have been singing these songs all your life. And when you sing that one particular carol, it just takes you to a certain place. Like for me, Silent Night uh, has become uh, a song that will always remind me of Christmas Eve. Because here at Connect, a week today, next Sunday night, in our Christmas Eve services, we will close out our Christmas Eve service the way we do every year, by lighting candles and singing Silent Night together. It's just the most wonderful part of the service, in my opinion. I love it. Um, last week, uh, Whitney spoke on O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, being the incredible musician that Whitney is, she uh, correctly pointed out that it's written in a minor key, uh, which means it's kind of got a somber, reflective feel to it. So when you sing, O Come, Emmanuel, you know, it's kind of the, that, that beautiful kind of Christmas feeling. But then when you sing a song like, um, O Come, All Ye Faithful, that's almost the opposite. That's tri joyful and triumphant. That's a, an upbeat, exciting song to sing. But there's one Christmas carol that for me will always take me back to my childhood. It's a Christmas carol that I think uh, we think more of as, as a, a Christmas carol that kids would sing. Uh, I know I sang it for sure uh, back in England growing up. So in England, we would sing um, Christmas carols at grade school around Christmas time. And I remember singing this one in particular because I remember singing it because it featured in our nativity play. And the carol that we're looking at this morning is uh, Away in a Manger, Away in a Manger. It's a great Christmas carol. And uh, like I said, we would do these school nativity plays. I don't know if we put the picture up yet, but let's put it up now. This is a picture of uh, the nativity plays in England where the kids all get to dress up as different characters in the Christmas story and, and act out the story of Joseph and Mary coming to Bethlehem, discovering there's no room in the inn, having to uh, make their way to the stable. It's just a, a, a classic story to be told by children. And uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember that I have a, a bit of a, a grudge against my nativity play experience. That uh, when I was a kid, maybe six, seven years ago, six or seven years old, uh, so that's like 30 years ago now, when I was a, a little six or seven-year-old kid, I remember being in the school nativity play, and I remember uh, I was given the role of donkey sound effect. Okay, so the donkey that Mary rode in on, I had two yogurt cups that I decorated, and as the donkey came in and onto the stage, I was there by a microphone going click, clock, click, clock with a couple of yogurt cups. And I was there. And years later, I feel like some bitterness has come in. I wasn't the wise man, I wasn't a, uh, a, a Joseph, I wasn't even a shepherd. I was the sound effect for a donkey. But here's what I think happened. I think at the time, my grade school teacher convinced me this was a really big deal. This was a really important, we need someone very reliable to do the sound effect for the donkey. And David, it's going to be you. And I think I probably was, and here's why I believe that's what happened. Because still to this day, 
Little British children are being deceived into the role in which they're playing in the nativity play. I know this to be true because this particular video went viral uh, over the last couple of weeks. Check guess, it out. Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part? Yeah. Um, Joseph? No. Uh, one of the three wise men? No. One of the innkeepers? No. Oh. Um, Call rejected. But it's a classic part. Yeah. Okay. Um, you tell me then, cause I'm door holder number three. I'll be holding doors. That's amazing. Holding doors for who? Um, probably um Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh! Were you pleased when they said that? Yeah. What and what did you do? And I was like. I'm a door holder. Get in there. Let's go. Yeah. Whoa. And, and and maybe because there's no room, I'll probably be just low, be like just coming in, and then I'll just slam them in, slam the door in their face. <laughs> Is that your star role? I'll probably, maybe I'll probably be dressed up as a door. <laughs> I, I want to tell this kid right now, dude. 30, 40 years from now, the penny's going to drop and you're going to realise, wait, door holder number three? That was it. But some teacher has convinced this young lad that that's a very key role. I love as well that in his head he's thought, it is important because there's no room in the inn. Maybe I'm the guy who shuts the door. I mean, that's very important that I'll be closing that door. So this, this song that we're going to look at this morning, this Christmas carol that we're going to focus in on this morning, Away in a Manger. It's a beautiful song, and it, and it focuses in on the, that, that first night, that Christmas night when, when baby Jesus was born. And really, the whole core of the carol, I think, takes us to the craziest part of the Christmas story, the most surreal, unbelievable part of the Christmas story, and that is that God himself, the creator of the universe, makes the decision to become Emmanuel, who last week Whitney explained to us is, is God with us, to be present with us. And he chose to be present with us, not in the form of a, a man or a king, but to come as a baby in a manger. I mean, who would have thought? The creator makes his grand entrance in a manger with no crib for a bed. And that's what this song is all about. I don't know if you guys are football fans. Uh, as you know, I'm a big American football fan. I know all about the game. Um, they have these things called trick plays, okay? Um, in my opinion, everything in American football is a trick play. I have no idea why they're running, why they're throwing, why they're even holding it. Why are you doing that? So, um, but I am aware of the fact that in some games, there are these things called trick plays. I talked to some of my American football uh, experts and they told me, yeah, that's kind of, you've kind of got the idea, but you've not really, but go ahead anyway. So it's this idea that in a game, they might do something that the other team isn't expecting. Sometimes I've seen it where the quarterback, he pretends to pass the ball to someone and that guy starts running like he's holding a ball and in all, all reality, he's not. It's great, it's a trick. And another guy over here, he was up his shirt. I don't know what happened, but he was running with the ball over this side instead. And, and that's kind of a trick play, I was told. But there are these things in football called trick plays. It's when a team does something that the other team just was not expecting at all. For hundreds of years, 
All the people of Israel were expecting a Messiah to come. They had this belief that God was gonna come. He was gonna send the Messiah. In their imaginations, they were picturing that he would come as a, as a king, maybe riding on a horse, and, and he would rescue them from being slaves to the Romans, that Israel would now become the conquering nation that they should be. This was their idea of, of what the Messiah would look like. But that first Christmas, God introduces a trick play. Instead of coming as the king that they were expecting, he comes as a baby born in a manger. A baby who will live his life, not as one of victory and conquering hero, but serving and loving others. Living a humble life. Actually losing his life on a cross, a Roman cross, giving up his life. But then three days later, that's when the victory comes. Three days later, he rises again and now is the conquering king. But it was like a trick play because the Israelites were not expecting a baby in a manger. And yet here he is. So each week, as we've looked at these Christmas carols, and this one, Away in a Manger, kind of focuses in on that idea of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, being born as a baby. Each week, we look at a line or two from these Christmas carols, and we, we kind of dial in a little bit and say, okay, that, that's great, but what does that mean to me today? My hope is that through this series, we've looked at some lines in these Christmas carols that in the future, when you sing them again, will take you back to, oh, I remember thinking a little bit more about what it means to be joyful and triumphant, what the word Emmanuel means. And this morning, I wanna look at the first couple of lines of this, this classic Christmas carol. It starts out, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And then the line I really wanna look at in detail this morning is the second line, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. I don't know about you, but I look at that line and it's a little bit challenging because I feel like in that, that second line there of that song, there's, there's kind of an oxymoron there. I'm sure you all know what an oxymoron is. It's when you have two words together in a phrase and they seem to contradict one another. Uh, if you're not familiar, there are uh, phrases like jumbo shrimp, that's an oxymoron, deafening silence, country music. These two words together, when they, they kind of contradict one another. <laughs> Oxymorons. And here in this Christmas carol, we learn that the little Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I think of those two words, little and Lord, and to me, they're very opposite meanings. When I think of little, I think of small. When I think of Lord, I think of big, majestic. And yet here they are together, little Lord Jesus. And it got me thinking about what I wanna speak about this morning, a subject that actually may make some of us a little bit uncomfortable because we're gonna have to kind of reflect and look in a little bit and say, okay, this is kind of a tough question for me to have to, to ponder, to answer. And the question I wanna ask us all this morning, the question I'd love for us to, to think about, and maybe even in years to come, when we sing this song, it'll remind us to ask that question again. Is your Jesus little or Lord? When you sing this Christmas carol, are you singing to little Jesus 
or to Lord Jesus. Because they're two very different ideas, aren't they? If we're honest, some of us would say this morning, maybe I've made Jesus too little in my life. Maybe he needs to be more of a Lord in my life. There's one guy we're all aware of who, who tends to think of Jesus as little Jesus. That is this guy right here who's always praying to dear eight pounds, six ounce newborn baby Jesus. But some of us do that, don't we? We, we think of Jesus as the Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger. Whereas the reality is he didn't stay baby Jesus, did he? He grew up to be adult Jesus. He died, he rose again, and now he's Lord Jesus, sat upon a throne. Do you know in the New Testament alone, the word Lord next to Jesus comes up 740 times. 740 times. If I'm hearing a phrase 740 times, I'm thinking there may be something to this. This may be something, that, that a point that's wanting to get across. The idea of Lord Jesus. There's a famous passage that describes the birth of this baby. It's in Luke chapter two. And my family and I, we sat down yesterday afternoon. We had some free time. We were in the mood for a Christmas movie. So we watched the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special. Uh, if you've not watched that, it's brilliant. And um, in the middle of it, uh, Charlie Brown is desperately trying to figure out the true meaning of Christmas. And Linus steps up onto the stage and he reads these words. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. The angels are saying, listen, you're gonna see in this town nearby a baby wrapped in clothes in a manger. But do you know who that baby is? He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. In his first introduction, the angels make clear, yes, he's coming as a baby, but he is the Lord. There's another thing I love about this passage that, that sometimes we miss. Uh, it said, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Have you ever heard people, they'll say, you know, uh, don't forget Jesus, he's the reason for the season. It's a great phrase, but when I read this passage, I think, you know, I'm not sure that Jesus is the reason for the season. I think you are the reason for the season. We are the reason for the season. Jesus loved us so much that he chose to leave heaven to come to earth as a baby for us. We are the reason for the season. In the New Testament, um, back in Bible times, they would have spoken Greek. So the original manuscripts we have uh, of the New Testament are all written in Greek and are now translated into English. So when you read the Bible today, you're reading an English translation of a Greek word. And that's brilliant, but sometimes the words we choose uh, almost are too small compared to what the original Greek word actually meant. The original Greek word for Lord was one called Kyrios. And Kyrios in Greek, it literally means supreme in authority, controller, Lord. 
That's what Kyrios means, someone who is supreme in authority, a controller, a Lord. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves this morning isn't, is Jesus Lord? The question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus supreme in authority over my life? Is he the controller? Do we have any control freaks here this morning? Any control freaks? Yep, I think I saw two hands go up there. Uh, anyone know a control freak? And if you know a control freak, <laughs> lots of hands going up there. What that shows me is either all the control freaks you know aren't here, they're all outside, or we're not very good at self-identifying. Because I think a few of those hands went up. They were talking about you. When they put their hand up, it was you they were talking about. And the truth is, we may not think of ourselves as control freaks, but I think every one of us likes to have a certain amount of control. Inversely, every one of us struggles at the idea of giving up control. Some of us, we still sit in the passenger seat of the car, pushing an imaginary pedal that's not there because we just are worried that someone else is in control of the speed and the journey that this car is taking. And yet, the literal meaning of Lord means we are given control. We're saying, God, I want you to have control of my lives. And with that definition, it makes that question a little tougher, doesn't it? Is he little or is he Lord? A little bit of self-reflection, a little bit of a uh, thinking here. Of, have I truly allowed him to be Lord? So what does it take to make Jesus Lord in our lives. What should we do? What should we be doing more of if we truly want Jesus to be Lord in our lives? Well, I can start out by letting you in on a little secret here this morning. Um, he's already Lord, okay? We don't need to, to make him Lord. God made him Lord. <laughs> Jesus may have come as a baby, but he died and he rose again. And we can read in the Bible that he sits now on a throne in heaven. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is Lord. We just have to decide, am I gonna allow him to be my Lord? Am I gonna surrender my life to him and allow him to be the Lord in my life? And I think that's the, that's the word right there that it comes down to, isn't it? It's that idea of surrender. How much of my life am I willing to give Jesus control of? How much am I willing to surrender to his lordship? So let's have a think this morning just about that word surrender, the idea of what it means to surrender. In my opinion, there's kind of three ways in which you can surrender when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. We're gonna look at ways two and three in a little bit more detail, but, but way one is that we don't surrender at all. There are some people who have just decided or um, are at that place right now where they've not surrendered in any way to Jesus. 10 years ago this year, we planted Connect Church. Casey, my wife and I, she grew up here in Washington. We were living here in Washington, but we were working for another church at the time, but we loved our community. We had great relationships with friends and neighbors, and a lot of them, through the community that we found ourselves in, were not followers of Jesus. And we really wanted them to, to learn and understand that Jesus loves them so much, that he has a plan for their lives, that he died for them, that the relationship that we'd experienced ourselves with Jesus, he also wanted them to experience. So 
Sometimes we would invite them to our church in Peoria and they'd say, well, I don't wanna go all the way to Peoria. So far away. So we, 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 we stepped out in faith and we planted this church in Washington because we wanted to reach people in our community who hadn't yet surrendered their lives to Jesus, who hadn't discovered Jesus. And when we opened the doors and we started, many people came in who weren't church attenders or it had been a long time since they'd been to church. If they were honest, they would say, yeah, no, I'm not following Jesus. I've not surrendered my life to him. And they started to attend and they made that decision. They surrendered their life to Jesus. I wanna tell you, 10 years later, nothing has changed. We still believe that our mission as a church is to connect our community to Christ. But as long as there are people outside of the walls of this building this morning, in this community, who don't yet know Jesus, we want them to know him. We want them to discover the great plan he has for their lives, how much he loves them. They may not have surrendered their lives yet to Jesus, but we are hoping and praying and we are believing that there are some seats here this morning just for them. So that's the first group. Who are the second group? There are those who have not surrendered at all. I would, I would identify the second group as those who have partially surrendered. Those who have partially surrendered. And if we're honest, the sad truth is that this is where a majority of Christians in America find themselves today, in that place of, of partially surrendering. I actually heard a preacher once use the phrase, he talked about practical atheists. Practical atheists. An atheist is somebody who doesn't believe there is a God. Well, practical atheists, by his definition, is those who claim there is a God, but live like there isn't. Basically, they're people who say, I believe that God is everything that he says he is, but I'm still gonna live my life my way. And unfortunately, Many of us know people like this. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us can identify a little bit to that. Our beliefs should inform our behaviors. If we are followers of Jesus this morning, our beliefs should inform our behaviors. Our lives should be different. If you're here this morning and you've made a decision to follow Jesus, then in following Jesus, you should start to see as your life goes on, transformation, changes take place. Because the person you're following, his values, his teaching, his life, it starts to impact you. Your values, your, your life, what you believe start to become transformed because of your relationship with Jesus. And that'll only happen if we're willing to give him control, if we're willing to allow him to be the Lord of our lives, if we're willing to surrender all to him. Jesus actually told a story. This is nothing new. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was still dealing with this idea of, of people who partially surrender. He told a story one day about two builders, one who built his house on sand and one who built his house upon a rock. And he was talking about the difference between these two houses. Uh, but listen to how he starts out that story. This is why he told the story to address a certain group of people. Luke chapter six, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet still you don't do what I say? You can almost hear the, the frustration in Jesus' voice there as he says, listen, you're saying Lord, but you're not living like I am Lord. 
There's a pastor by the name of Craig Grishel. He says this. He says, why are you giving me lip service and no life service? Why would you give Jesus lip service but no life service? The idea that, that many of us, we call upon Jesus. We attend church on a regular basis, but, but throughout the rest of the week, throughout the rest of our life, it's not really making a change. It's more than just attending church. It's a lifestyle change. The problem is, I think, that some of us, we want to take portions of the Bible and we just want to kind of discard them because we find them too difficult to live. Maybe they're things we don't agree with or we don't understand. We look at some of the teachings of Jesus and we think of it as being too old-fashioned or, or not relevant for me or, or restrictive. Instead of trusting that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He, some of these things, he knows the, the damage they can do in our lives. And he's not putting these things in place to make us miserable, but actually the opposite, to set us free, to, to help us discover a life of freedom and liberation lived following him. But it needs us to trust him, to say, I want you to be Lord of all, as opposed to picking and choosing in our partially surrendered lives. So our goal this morning, every one of us, myself included, should be to find our way to that place of full surrender. To say, God, I don't want to live in partial surrender. I don't want to just think of you as little. I want you to be Lord in my life. What is it going to take to move from that place of little to Lord, from the baby in a manger to the king on the throne? I think it's going to require us asking and answering a really difficult question. When it comes to control, we probably have to ask the question, what area am I still trying to control? What area of my life am I still trying to keep hold of, to keep tightly held on, to, to control? In Proverbs, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you what path to take. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, not partial, all don't depend on your own understanding, but trust him. He'll show you which path to take. So what areas of our life do we still need to give God control of? Maybe it's our future or our job, our finances, our marriage, our kids. It could be an attitude or a behavior, something like anxiety or fear or unforgiveness or anger. And we know deep down that this is something we haven't really surrendered completely to God. So it's a commitment to keep moving in this direction. That's the challenge when it comes to, to fully surrendering to God. I believe when it comes to, to fully surrendering to God, this isn't a destination, it's a journey. It's not something that you can think, okay, I'll keep doing this and doing this and doing this, and then one day I've arrived. I'm there, I am fully surrendered. <laughs> Look at me. The reality is, and maybe you've experienced this, there, there could be something in your life and you know God's kind of tugging at your heart and you know it's something that you need to, to give more to God and you actually see some breakthrough and you give more of this to God and you're like, God, look at this. And he's like, that's awesome. Now let's look at this. <laughs> and something new shows up. And I wanna stress something this morning. That's not because God is a, a, a cruel father who we can never measure up to, always expects more of us, is never happy of where we're at. I don't believe that's the case at all. I think he loves us dearly for who we are, 
The Bible says he died for you while you were still a sinner. That's how much he loved you. You'd done nothing to deserve his love. And yet he still sent Jesus to die for you. But he knows that the more we surrender our lives, the greater our lives will be. So he'll always be tugging at our hearts, challenging us to, to surrender more to him because the, the benefits of that surrender are so great. Think about it this way. Let's, let's say, for example, this morning you struggle with fear. He wants you to surrender that to him because he wants you to experience this incredible life-changing peace that only he can provide. The more we surrender those, those things that cause fear and anxiety, the more we will experience his peace instead. Maybe it's anger. The more we surrender that to God, the more freedom we'll experience in our life, the more we'll experience his love for us, his love for others. As we surrender that to him, we'll find we'll come to a place where we no longer live in guilt or shame or regret for that last outburst or what that anger caused because we're giving more and more of it to God. We're allowing him control over that area of our life. He knows the cost of surrender is high, but he also knows that a life lived in surrender is so worth it. And he loves us so much and he wants us to experience that. But it comes at a cost. It's not easy. It's not easy to relinquish control. It's not easy to surrender that area of our life. We want to hold on. It costs us dearly, but if we're willing to, the rewards are great. I have a family member who uh, fancies himself as a bit of a poker player. I mean, he's really kind of got into the game. He's learned all the, uh, the odds, you know, what the best hands are, the statistical advantages. You know, he's really kind of getting into the game. I mean, he knows when to hold them. He knows when to fold them. He knows when to walk away. I think I just quoted a country song there, didn't I? <laughs> That's a little bit scary. Um, I mean, he's, he's serious. He wears the hat, the dark glasses. He's got that poker face, that po-poker face. <laughs> there we go. I'm back now. Back to Lady Gaga. <laughs> but he loves playing, and he's real serious. And sometimes we'll play as a family together. Now, when we play as a family, we don't play for money. We play, you know, for chips, and we've got a big tin of them. We get all the chips out, and we divide them equally amongst the family. And I can remember um, when um, some of the family were brand new to the game. They were just learning, and um, we'd give them all the chips. And this one particular family member, you know, he, he, he knew exactly what was going on, so he'd have a really good hand, like an ace and a king, and he knew that statistically this was a winning hand. So he's like betting really high. He's putting all of his chips in. And then this other family member, they too are betting really high, putting their chips in. So finally, he's like, all right, I'm all in. All in. That's when you put everything you own on the table. This other family member would go, me too. And then this family member would turn over their cards and they had a two and a seven or a three and a five. I mean, something just awful. And this, he'd be like, oh, that's so annoying. You don't understand. You don't go all in on a hand like that. If, if you understood how poker was, if you understand the rules, you should have folded. You should have stayed in. Why would you do that? And this, he's, he's, You're going to lose. And the other family member would say, well, that's fine. I'll just get some more chips out of the tin. Oh, and that drove him so mad because there was no cost. It was like, yeah, I'll keep playing. 
And then to infuriate him even more, the cards would turn over and there was like a, a four, a six, and a seven. And his ace and king were worth nothing. And this other one's won a straight. And they're winning. He's like, that shouldn't have happened. You shouldn't win. Because there was no cost involved. Now, the professional players, when you see them playing, there's some skin in the game. I mean, they got large amounts of money riding on their hands. So they're choosing very carefully which hands to bet on, which hands to bluff with. Because they know that the larger the bet, the more they stand to lose. But if they are really confident in the hand they've got, they'll go all in. Because it's saying, I'm willing to put everything I've got on the line. I'm that confident of the outcome. And if they win, when they win, it's the best possible reward. Because the more they put in, the more they get back out. I think when it comes to surrender, God is saying, would you go all in for me? You're putting bits in, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're hedging your bets here a little bit. Go all in, trust me. Going all in on me is the best bet you can possibly make. I believe the more you're willing to surrender, the more of God you'll experience in your life. We look at it as this cost because we, we have a hard time giving up control. We want to think more of the little Lord Jesus as opposed to the Lord, Lord Jesus. It's hard. We feel like we're losing more if we give more. But actually, we're getting more of what God has to offer in our lives. So this Christmas, especially as we hear that carol or sing that carol, let's make a decision to make the little baby Jesus Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And God, whether we define ourselves as control freaks or not, every one of us has a hard time of just letting go and letting God. But the reality is, Lord, it can be the most liberating, freeing experience ever if we're willing to trust you. So I pray, Lord, that every one of us would examine our lives, would say, are there areas in my life where I'm still just partially surrendered? And if that is the case, Lord, help me because I can't do this on my own. Help me, Lord, to give more to you, to surrender more. I realize, Lord, this isn't an on-off switch. This is a journey. This is a gradual process. And, and every time I move forward in this journey, there's still further I could go. But I pray, Lord, that each step I take towards you, each area of my life I surrender more to you, each part of my life that I give you more control of, that I'll start to see the wonderful benefits of doing so the freedom, the peace, the joy, the love that can only be found in you. And that will be my inspiration, Lord, to give you more, to make you more, to make you the Lord in my life. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.